0: Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Churches, abbeys, chapels and cathedrals have come to define our landscape and our past in Britain. And in his new book, If These Stones Could Talk... Peter Stamford chronicles his journeys around Britain, rediscovering the stories of these sometimes forgotten, yet often humbling buildings, and uncovers the vital connection to the past which they have to offer. Our podcast editorial assistant, Emily Briffitt, joined Peter to find out more.
1: Hello and welcome to you, Peter. It's lovely to have you here with us today.
2: And it's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: So today we're going to be talking a bit about your book, If These Stones Could Talk, The premise of your book is telling the history of Christianity in Britain and Ireland through 20 buildings from the first century to modern day. Could you perhaps give us a brief overview of some of the buildings you write about, perhaps what types we might expect to find in your book and a few examples?
2: Uh, All types, I hope. Um, So when I was writing the book, I um, I used to have a little map in front of me at various stages because I was very keen. The original idea was to write about England and Wales, or when I was talking about, about publishers, and the original idea was to do six churches. And I kind of like the idea. I like that. I'm, I'm a great walk around churches, so I liked that idea. And then it seemed to me that um, you can't really understand English, Christianity in England and Wales, without understanding Ireland. Because although in most of the English relationships with Ireland, it's the English telling the Irish what to do, um, in terms of Christianity, it's the Irish who brought Christianity certainly to the northern half of the country, and I think it—it it, obviously filters in much deeper. It, it is part of us, and, and my own background not my own, but my family background is as Irish Catholics who then came and I was brought up in Liverpool. So it was, the idea was to bring all of those things together, but I was very keen on my map to make sure I had places all around the country. So I wanted a good spread, as they might say. And I um, even tried to do it slightly with a um, a sort of calculator. I was thinking, so the population of Scotland is this. So if we've got 20 chapters, there should be two of the chapters should be about a Scottish church, one about Welsh. So I mean, obviously, I didn't do it entirely like that, but it, But I think it was very good to get the balance right. Um, in terms of choosing the churches, they're a funny mix. Well, hopefully, they're an entertaining mix as well. Um, uh, some of them are ones that I know very well and love. Um, I mean, I've been walking around churches since well always really but particularly since my children were small and I found it quite a nice thing to do to uh, to kind of entertain them so there were some that I'd found and I just loved there are some there are some churches that you go into or you stand outside and they just take your breath away There is something, they are so beautiful. And in a sense, I mean, they're not humble because lots of them are very enormous. Um, But there's something about, particularly in the 21st century and particularly in a Western, relatively secular country where people don't go to church very much anymore. They're almost kind of like, uh, it's almost like you stumble over them, these wonderful gems that in some ways, and only in some ways, are a bit like a kind of museum because they're full of wonderful things, but they're also living. Because, OK, so not many people go to church, but some, most some I think in all of the churches in the, in the book, someone goes to them sometimes. And then I decided that we needed a balance, really, in, to, in order to carry the reader through between ones that they would know. So for my 15th century church, for instance, I choose the Henry the Seventh Chapel at the back of Westminster Abbey. Very, very famous church. I mean, just the most astonishing uh, uh, chapel at the back. If if people have been there, kind of tiring ceiling... uh, fan vaulting, things hanging down, and all the tombs of the Reformation. Um, my favourite bit of it is that uh, Elizabeth I and Mary Tudor, Mary I, are sort of almost in the same bit, except for Elizabeth's a bit higher and Mary's a bit lower. You feel it's almost like a jigsaw of history laid out in front of you when you're in there. So that's a, that's a very famous one. And then some of them are really quite obscure. Um, for my Welsh church, I chose and I. I I've loved this church for years, um, a church called St Melangeth, or Melangeth, um, a Welsh person told me, Melangeth is what I meant to say, um, which is it's a 12th century Norman church. So it's when William the Conqueror came over and he his ambition was to conquer Wales in the same way uh, the Romans had tried but had failed. And so he had all his marcher barons um, on the border between England and Wales and they came over and they built Norman churches. So they built this church, St Melangeth's, at a place called Pennant Melangeth. It is so hard to find. Um, Basically, you you take the road from from Liverpool and Chester across to Barla Lake, so cut across North Wales, and you turn off and sort of go back on yourself. And then you follow this little tiny track up through a valley, a a very beautiful hidden valley. And the church is right up at the top of this hidden valley with a waterfall behind it. The thing that is, uh, it's, it's just wonderful about it. So originally the church had been um, an anchorite cell for uh, a 7th century Irish princess, the legend says, who'd re- resisted the advances of her her suitor, her chosen husband, chosen by her family, and she came there in the same way that monasteries were being set up uh, at the same time for men. She did, she did that. A local prince came by, saw her, communing with the animals, was so moved he gave her the building or gave her the land. A group of other women joined to there. So all that bit is wonderful. But the thing that I love about it most, come the Reformation, um, there was a shrine in St. Melangath that contained fragments of the bone of Melangath, and it was, a, it was a Romanesque shrine. So a bit like, if you think of a very, very narrow church, in, in miniature, like a children's version of a very uh, narrow church, with a tent on top, almost, and her relics would be in there and people would come and pray along either side. So the order, when the Reformation came, order came to St Mellangeth saying, uh, sorry, this is all far too Catholic, far too popish, we're not having shrines, we're not having healing, we're not having relics, not having any of that nonsense anymore, smash it, get rid of it and they didn't want to. But equally, they didn't want to draw trouble to themselves. So what they decided to do was they dismantled it section by section, and they hid it in the north wall of the church and then plastered over it. So that was in the 1500s. And then in Victorian times, in the 1900s, a a Victorian kind of sort of historian, discovered what had happened. I mean, I don't know whether it was still in the collective memory of the people around it. Very few people around it. It's very remote. But nothing happened until the 1980s, when an Anglican vicar called Paul Davis was sent there with his wife Evelyn, who later became uh, a vicar as well. And they unearthed it. They got it out of the wall and they rebuilt the Romanesque shrine on the altar. And architectural historians say this is the finest Romanesque shrine in the whole of Northern Europe. And it was buried in a and it was brought out by a couple who went to a lonely church and it sits in the middle of nowhere it, it's just it, it, it's a it's a phrase we use a lot it took my breath away but it really took my breath away
1: so it's a combination i guess of churches and buildings that really stand out and also those with sort of individual standout stories and ones that you've got feel like you i guess make a connection to almost
2: Yes, and I think, um, one, I mean, obviously it's a book. So it's not a film but it's but it's all that thing about making it visual and carrying people i mean i, I don't talk about myself endlessly in the book don't worry um but it, but in a sense i i'm kind of in the book in the sense you're going on the journey with me and so the 20 what what each of the 20 churches does is it tells the history of that century so i mean it's a historical book it's um it's telling you the history of faith in these hours it's telling you how it affects politics or how it was affected by politics by kind of kings and also by social changes and it's very much a social history as well because one of the things you get when you go in a church is you get a sense of the people who have worshipped in them. You are standing in the footsteps of people who've been there in some of these churches for you know hundreds of years, if not over a thousand years. There is this chain that links you, this human chain. So that part of it was was very important, and and, and the social history bit of it. And so there's all the, the the many aspects of the story in each church, but some of them so spoke of a particular individual. Um, so my 14th century church is a is is in a remote bit of Lincolnshire. Um, uh, and it's the church that Wycliffe, the, the 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 well, the great reformer. In a sense, he was the great reformer of 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 Catholicism pre-Reformation, and a lot of the post-Reformation changes that came. You know, he, the the Bible in English that was something he started, and it was a church where he was the uh, rector. And I suppose what I really liked about that was one of the things that he did as a as a campaigner for reform was that he complained bitterly about all these um, countryside churches being left vacant, Um, or not vacant, but the incumbent like him, because he taught at Oxford as well. He would just go over there every six months, take a a, a very handsome kind of living from it all, and he would put in, in for the rest of the time, he would put in a a local priest who was often very ill-educated. So it was how the parish system uh, developed at that stage, rather a kind of wonderful church. And the thing that I really loved about it when I went there was all the things that he later complained about, about these incumbents who were never there and people weren't taught the faith and the priest was never there and the priests who were there weren't very well trained. And this all comes over in um, Piers Plowman uh, 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 as well. Um, he comp- The things he complained about, he actually did. He did. So, in a sense, he had his own kind of moment of redemption or revelation or whatever, and he changed. So, sometimes they reflect particular characters. I've talked about uh, Melangeth. Uh, there, lots of them. And actually, the final, the only indulgent one in there, well, they're all indulgent in a sense because I like them all, the only one that is particularly indulgent is I was trying to think of a 20th century um, church and one that sort of bound together different bits of the British Isles. So, I grew up in Liverpool um, And when I grew up in Liverpool in the 1970s, there was still the residue of... Uh, sectarianism huge wave of Irish immigration into Liverpool huge uh, wave of Welsh immigration into Liverpool as well but the Welsh were Protestants and the Irish were Catholics and it was a very sectarian time so my mother uh, remembers very clearly at primary school the Catholic school and always Protestant never called Anglican they would throw stones at each other and even as a kind of you know a a teenager in Liverpool I remember orange marches would still happen there Ian Paisley would come over and lead an orange march Um, So... I wanted a church that, that, that symbolised the, the, the churches going together, going together and going forward. And Liverpool Catholic Cathedral, finally I had a moment of revelation and it's very modern. I realised it looks like a rocket because it, it sits up on a plinth and it looks like a rocket taking off. And, you know, it was built in the 1960s, interestingly built by a Protestant architect, while the huge Liverpool Cathedral, a Liverpool Anglican Cathedral down, down the road, which is Gothic and very backward looking in lots of ways, uh, was built by a Catholic architect. So there's a bit of it all. And these two churches are joined by a street called Hope Street. And the the two bishops in the 70s, 80s and 90s, they swept away that sectarianism. So I think you get a real sense through the church of this new mood of both engagement with politics, I mean, obviously the church has always been engaged with politics, but it had been engaged with kings before. This was the church engaged with people's politics. That, you know, and in the 1980s, Liverpool was in a terrible, terrible state again. And so, you know, the city was at its lowest point then. And these two bishops stepped in and the church became something so powerful in society uh, on all sorts of levels. But in the um, the lantern dome, so the, nub of, the nib of the rocket, in a sense, is stained glass by John Piper and when you any time of day you walk in the sun plays through it and the light goes round and in terms of a transcendent experience if you want to go into church for a transcendent experience that that that's the one so that's very, the last one is very personal to me
1: it's something much more representative of the time
2: as well indeed indeed um, and yeah and and i mean each church tells the story of the century in, in the book. But one of the things I'd found before I started reading and researching the book is, you know, you wander around churches and you kind of get the date and you start trying to fit the date in your mind into whose reign and what was going on at the time. And the one that always used to flummox me was sort of Anglo-Saxon slash Viking churches. And you think, when did all of that happen? Because we had the golden Anglo-Saxon age in the 8th century, and Bede was writing his ecclesiastical history of the English peoples, and the church that he did it in, uh, Jarrow Abbey, is the church for the 8th century. Um, But then by the end of the the century, the Vikings were coming, and then we had another um, Anglo-Saxon revival, but the Vikings were still almost around when William the Conqueror came. So how did all of that work? So to an extent, it was me kind of working at getting it in order in my own mind um and of course you have in 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 the earlier bit of that history you have things coming from two directions so you have the um the sixth century church in the book is clon um uh, an abbey in um, on the river shannon in the west of ireland saint kieran founded it um in the early part of the sixth century and it was a kind of powerhouse of scholarship and fierce independence and he sent all these monks out so off they went now when, the English always sort of say or the Scottish even always say ah yes it was St Columba when he came to Iona who, who, who did that but actually it started in Ireland and Columba before he went to Iona went to Clom to meet, meet the monks there to decide what he was going to do so you have that whole movement over the Irish Sea into Scotland down through England through Lindisfarne, Holy Island, the Kingdom of Northumbria down into Mercia but at the same time, in 597, Pope Gregory the Great sends Augustine, not Augustine, the, the slightly uptight theologian who hated women, but um, but Augustine of, uh, of Canterbury, he's now called, who was a monk. And he comes over and he converts the king of Kent. And initially, the church that he uses is called St. Martin's Canterbury, or is now called St. Martin's Canterbury, and that still exists. It's the oldest church in in, in England. Uh, It's a a sixth-century church made of Roman brick, so even older still. And when you go in, you can touch the Roman brick, and you can stand in the section that is the original section. And when you're standing there, you think, Augustine stood here. King Ethelbert, who who converted, stood here, and Queen Bertha, who brought him to convert. They all stood in this space. So that is all going on in southern England, in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, and up they go. They stretch upwards into East Anglia, into Mercia again, and you have this great meeting at the Synod of Whitby with a kind of what we now call, they would never have called it this themselves, but we call it the Celtic Church, Ireland, Scotland, Wales as well to an extent, and the Roman Church, which we do, a phrase we do use, use um and they did use then of, of augustine coming up and they meet so you have these tides of different ideas washing over and it's just fascinating it's just fascinating sorting it out in your mind and getting away as well what the churches do to a certain extent is they get you away from those standard narratives so at the synod of whitby in 664 i think it is um they um the, the standard story is, oh well, the, the you know the king of Northumbria was there, and he decided the Roman lot were better than the, the the Celtic lot, and so they all went off and licked their wounds, and we became a Roman church. It's just not true. Um, there were all these different influences, and you see in the church those those Celtic influences again, in inverted commas Celtic, because uh, it's a dangerous word, because Celtic can also mean pagan before that. Anyway, but you but you see these in later churches, they're still there, and in some of the uh, liturgical practices and rites, these and the decorations, it's, it's it's a wonderful mishmash. A bit like the English are kind of a wonderful mishmash already. Our history is a wonderful mishmash. In in church terms,
1: so is there any sort of examples of where we can see this this contrast, this this mishmash, this change, the shift in actually in the churches themselves? Could you maybe tell us a bit more about that?
2: Well, what you can one of the really obvious places to see it, and I, I talked about there being big churches and small churches in there, but a really obvious place is Durham Cathedral, um, vast kind of Norman fortress of a church. I mean, uh, uh, as it stands there, and was built by William the Conqueror when he came because he 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 saw religion as something that could buttress his authority as the usurper king in that sense. So he builds the cathedral, and the castle is right next to it. So, the two are meant to go hand in hand. So, it's state religion, uh, Roman religion, because uh, his uh, Archbishop Lanfranc came from Rome. He was very lined up, William the Conqueror, with the Popes. So, you can see all those. But what does Durham Cathedral contain? What is the thing everyone goes to see in Durham Cathedral? It's the tomb, the relics of St Cuthbert, who was the abbot of Lindisfarne a couple of centuries earlier. And when the Vikings first... Vikings come to Lindisfarne in 793. It's one of the first places they raid. And the monks... On Lindisfarne, Holy Island, again, if people know it, it's the one that's, that's joined to the mainland by a causeway, but it floods twice a day, so there are times we sat there. So they hurried across the muddy causeway before the tide came in with his remains, which had been part of a kind of shrine on Lindisfarne, and it toured around for quite a bit and they couldn't quite work out where to put it. So, but when William the Conqueror builds his great, his great monument to himself, to Norman rule, to Roman Christianity, to church and state working together, to the Pope and all those things, what does he put in there? He puts a Celtic saint in there as the central point. So, it's a, it is a complete mixture. We've, you know, we've, yeah, it's a complete mixture.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: You don't need to join the institution to go in the building, certainly six days a week. You can go in there and you can learn about yourself and your history and why we've ended up why we are. They're just this fabulous resource in the middle of our communities and they're so little use and they're free.
3: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/historyextra today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp hel history historyextra This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring. Need to hire? You need indeed.
1: One of the first things you really talk about is the sort of early influences of Christianity. Right at the beginning, but you kind of mentioned that it's impossible to establish these origins in Britain and Ireland. But how far back can we really date it? What are the earliest manifestations of Christianity that we really see
2: um, yes, th- th- this is a difficult one. So when I was preparing the book or when I was first talking to my editor about the book, uh, she suggested that it was six, six churches to cover the history of Christianity in England and Wales. And I thought, oh, that's not enough. That's not enough. I'm going to do Scotland and Ireland. And I thought, that's not enough. I've got 20 centuries, I'll do 20 churches, because that really makes sense. And what we certainly do know is that there was Christianity in, um, in what the Romans called Britannia, but was effectively England and Wales, in the first century. So the Romans conquered Britannia in AD 43, and... But obviously, Christianity at that stage was a persecuted or not an official religion. And the, the thing that the Romans thought bound the Roman Empire together was the worship of their own gods. So everyone had to do that publicly. So there will be no churches there. Um, and I hadn't really thought that one through, to be honest. When I started researching, I thought, oh, oh, where is my church going to be? And so I was kind of thinking, there must be a Roman ruin somewhere. But of course, there weren't, because... Because they wouldn't have built churches at that stage. So what I end up with in the first century is it's a rather kind of legendary period, period. And, you know, the whole story of Christianity, certainly in the first millennium, there are lots of legends going on and lots of people telling you stories for other reasons than the truth as you're going through there. So what I do in the first century, I, I, I'm afraid I fall back on that old staple, Glastonbury, Um And all the legends around Glastonbury. So one legend has it that um, Aristobulus, who was a bishop from Rome, came in the first century and evangelised, particularly in Wales and in the southwest of England. And he built the first Christian church in Glastonbury. And there are all sorts of reconstructions that historians have done. It's all made out of kind of twigs and trees and things. Um, And then it fell down. And then much later on in the 10th, 11th century, they built a, a lady chapel on it to mark the spot where it all started, and then that fell down as well in the in the Reformation. So none of that. So there's a bit of rubble on the ground, frankly. Um, if that if if Aristobulus ever existed, if he ever came here, and then the other story that's told around Glastonbury is that. Um, that Joseph of Arimathea, who, in, if people remember in the uh, New Testament story, he's the one who gives Jesus his tomb after he's crucified, and it's the one that Jesus rises out of. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea suddenly becomes um, a merchant who was selling his goods everywhere, and he sailed round to um, to Glastonbury, which at that stage, when the Somerset Levels uh, hadn't been drained, was an island. And he so he sailed up in his boat, but um, unclear in the legend whether he was doing it to sell things to people or to bring christianity but you know let's embroider the legend yet more the holy grail the the the, the, the chalice from the last supper that's meant to be, have been in glastonbury as well bits of jesus's blood drip through the water that isn't true we know there's iron in the water in the in the, in the um in the holy grail well there so that isn't blood that is that is iron but anyway good legend why spoil a good story and um, but the story there is that when he gets out of the boat he plants his wooden staff that he that he's holding in the ground to help him get up onto the island, and he leaves it there, and it sprouts into a tree. And ever after, they've taken cuttings from that tree. Every time the tree gets very old, they take cuttings and grow a new one. So it's like a dynasty of thorn trees. And there's one in Glastonbury Abbey, right by the spot where Aristobulus's church might have been, where the uh, the Lady Chapel was, and where it was all done. So my first century building is a bit of rubble, unfortunately, and a tree. Now, legend, legend, clearly legend in lots of ways, but... And this is why I love this, it makes it so intriguing, the story. In the uh, 1980s or 1990s, some botanists um, went and took little uh, cuttings from the tree and went and examined them uh, to find out, you know, what it was, because it's quite an unusual tree. And um, what they discovered was it's a very rare species of tree. You don't find it anywhere in Northern Europe and very little in Southern Europe, but where you find it in great numbers is in the Middle East, particularly in the Holy Land and Palestine. I mean, you couldn't make it up really, could you? But so so that's the first century. I mean, obviously what I do then... I cheat slightly in the second century with, with the Roman occupation, because again, there isn't a second century church because Christianity was still persecuted. But the, the most famous symbol, in a way, and this is where I go for a, a big name as opposed to an obscure name, is the shrine of St. Alban in St. Alban's Abbey. So he was, a, he was a martyr for Christianity. The dates vary, but there's a date that puts him right at the very beginning of the third century, possibly at the end of the second century. So he was martyred there. And this is all told in Bede's uh, Ecclesiastical History of the English People. So I guess you know, the, the actual shrine in the, the building now is is uh, a Norman building and the shrine has been through endless manifestations and indeed was dro- destroyed in the Reformation. And then an- it was another one that was discovered smashed up under the floor and they put it all back together. It's kind of a bit odd. It's, it's not one of my favourite shrines. Uh, the one at St. Melangeth's is so much better. But anyway, it is all there. And so that works for martyrdom. And then you asked for the first Christian symbol. The first Christian symbol that we can find, there's one at um, that was unearthed at, a, at a, a villa, a Roman villa at Hinton St Mary in Dorset, which has the Cairo, so the, you know the Greek letters for, for the first two letters of Christ's name in Greek, the Cairo symbol. Uh, they have it there, and they even have a, um, a little a little disc with a picture of a man with curly hair, rather pale skinned, who perhaps is Jesus. But more significant is in Lullingstone Villa, which is a Roman villa down in Kent, um, just beyond the M25 near uh, Dartford, which has been extensively. Uh, excavated not only is there a cairo there but they've excavated a whole body of the roman villa which originally was a basement kind of spirit room prayer room where the the occupiers and they think the roman governors might have lived in this house at one stage because it's so elaborate they would water they would worship a water deity and there's a well in the middle of it all and there were, there were little bits around on the wall and then in the room above so Christianity became much more accepted uh, by the, um, the end of the third century, beginning of the fourth century. Then there was a bit more persecution under Diocletian, I think it was. And then in 313, the Emperor Constantine said, You can you can be whatever you like, really. If you want to be a Christian, that's fine. But it's thought that this Roman um house church with the Cairo and lots of other things was um was built around that period. So, in a sense, it takes you from the kind of legendary period. Through the persecution, through the release, you go through into the release of of the Cairo symbol. Unfortunately, and no one made this clear when I was um, about to go to the Roman thing. The Cairo symbol itself on the on the Lullingstone site is is a is a mock up, and the real version is in the British Museum. So I could have gone ten minutes down the road to the British Museum, but the villa itself is fascinating because it teaches you so much.
1: It's typical that they have those, that's how where it happens to be, isn't it? Really,
2: I know, I know. And I thought they were a bit sly in not telling you before you got there. But anyway, hey,
1: what can you do? So I guess this leads to when do we start to see religious houses? I guess be the right word for it. When do we start to see them become more common?
2: Uh, well, the first one is the one I mentioned earlier, which is this uh, St Martin's in Canterbury, the oldest. Um, the oldest church in England. Uh, no one's quite sure what it was before. It might have been a cemetery chapel. It's in an area where Roman graveyards were, Roman necropolises. Uh, it's certainly built of Roman bricks, which are those rather thin uh, red ones. What I loved about being there was when you go to the Roman villa, you're standing behind all these barriers and you don't even think of leaning over and don't think you can touch any of this. You go, this is the joy of churches. You go into St. Martin's Canterbury, you stand, as I've said before, where Augustus. and there are all the bricks. And so you can stand there and you can put your hands all over them and think, I'm touching a Roman brick. I'm touching something that is 1,700 years older than me. There's just something in that. So this this we think is the first church. This is where Augustine uh, made his base when he first came to England. And then uh, Ethelbert, the king, decided to build himself a new palace and gave Augustine what was the old palace, which became the cathedral there. So that is the oldest one there. But there's a whole series of oldest ones that you can go to. Um the other one that I really loved was, um, again, so I keep talking about the M25. I'm making this sound a really glamorous journey that I went on. Um, but um, at a place called St Andrews in Greenstead, which is near Ongar in Essex, it really is... I mean, you can't hear the M25, but it's really not that far away. We have the oldest wooden church in the world. Not in England, it is the oldest wooden church in the world. I mean, they've got all those wooden churches in, in Sweden and Denmark, and you assume they're there. But this was one that started being built in the nine Nineties, and it's um it's huge split logs they're half logs and they um and they f- the flat side is on the inside and the rounded side is on the outside and it was a church that was built was built there it's been added to at either end and and, and it's not reconditioned wood that's been put in the place it is the actual wood so again you are touching a thousand year old pieces of wood when you go into this church it's extraordinary, and you know, the, and it's a miracle in lots of ways because it's built of wood and it survived the Vikings. The Vikings were constantly turning up on the coast of um, Essex around Maldon. There were two great battles: one where they were beaten, and one where they beat the beat the uh, beat the Anglo Saxons there. And it really isn't that far away. And one of the details in the church, there's all these details that make it so wonderful. One of the details in the church. Is that the, the Saxon churches had very small windows, if at all. So there would have been some very, very small windows up high. So you can imagine the power of light coming through those, um, and it would illuminate the darkness. And if you think about Jesus being the, the the bringer of light and all of those things, you can see the symbolism of it. Um, the Victorians have fiddled around with the roof a bit and put some skylights in, which is the same. But there's this one bit of glass in, in amongst all these logs. And the legend is, they tell you it's a leper's squint. Um, so uh, the the good folk of Greenstead in um, in the tenth, eleventh, twelfth century weren't very keen on on lepers coming in to receive communion or go to mass for obvious reasons. They might catch it, uh, so they would let them stand outside the leper's squint, and the, and then the vicar could see them, and he would hand out the the Eucharist, if he wanted to do it. But what seems much more likely is that the leper's squint was there so the people inside the solid building of the church could see if marauding Vikings were coming towards them and take the appropriate action. So, you know, history overlaying history. And it's, it's the sense that these these churches sit there quietly, relatively unvisited, and they have this extraordinary history and you go in and there's a wonderful line in um, in the Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. So in the 1930s, Eliot went on a visit to a place called Little Gidding, which is another of the churches in the book, which in the 17th century had been a high-minded Anglican community had been based there. And so um, uh, Eliot goes there and indeed the last of the Four Quartets four quartets is called Little Gidding and it's based there and he has a line in there where he talks about you're walking and you're kneeling and you're praying where people have walked and knelt and prayed before that you are in this human chain that the stones are actually speaking to you it's where the title of the book comes from these stones speak to you because you're there they connect you with things and it does it there in Little Gidding but it also does it in these wooden churches I mean they're not technically stone are they they're wood um, and you're just standing there and you think gosh how extraordinary and one of the reasons in, in a kind of bigger picture i mean we're talking about we're obviously talking about the history but i think in a bigger picture as well about ourselves one of the things that the 20th and 21st century has done in many ways in a very empowering way is tell you about the power of the individual and how we're all very important and we all have rights and i you know i don't i don't disagree with the rights but i don't think i'm very important um but when you stand in those situations you really, really understand that we are all just these tiny, tiny flecks of stone in this vast tide of history, that we're connected in this extraordinary chain of people reaching back through the ages. And I think going into churches and looking at these things is a real corrective to um, to the modern tendency to over overestimate ourselves. The other thing I absolutely loathe is when people use the word medieval um, to suggest kind of foolish or stupid. Oh my God, it's you know. Oh, it's so medieval. And you want to go? They were really clever. They were really clever. They. I mean, I know they they couldn't build petrol engines, which of course have brought us no end of harm, really. Uh, but they you know they knew lots of other things, and we mustn't dismiss them. So I I love that sense, and and in many ways it's why because the book is about two things really it's about telling history but it's also about encouraging people to go into churches you know we live in very skeptical times now and a lot of people when i tell them what i've done they go "Oh, i couldn't really go in a church and i said oh what you've got a violent objection to religion have you and they said oh no 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 but if i went into a church i wouldn't know what to do and i always say something there'll be no one there If you go to visit it out of hours, you know, there'll be no you'll have it to yourself. So if you want to do a handstand, if you think that's what you should do when you're in there, go and do a handstand in there, it won't matter. But you can you can go into these places and they're treasuries of history. And in a sense, I suppose what the book is arguing for. One of the reasons people have turned their back on religion is they've turned their back on institutional religion for all sorts of very good reasons. And so people think, I want no part in that institution. And the buildings are associated with the institution, but the buildings don't need to be associated with the institution. You don't need to join the institution to go in the building certainly six days a week. You can go in there and you can learn about yourself and your history and why we've ended up why we are. They're just this fabulous resource in the middle of our communities, and they're so little use, and they're free.
1: This is part of the question that I really wanted to ask you, is you mention in your book that although they may have been built to the glory of God, but actually they have this continuing resonance, their meaning is more subtle now.
2: It, it is, and, it, and it, it comes back as well. It's the, the meaning is subtle because we struggle to decode it, um, because... Church being the church, the institutional church being... It puts funny names on everything. So, you know, the, the nave, the chancel... I mean, obviously, I was brought up by the Irish Christian Brothers, so I went to church every single day. So I know where my nave and my chancel is, but most people don't. But some of the names kind of... I get slightly confused. Um, there's a one... My 7th century church in Northampton, which has these amazing Saxon arches made of... Um, it's called All Saints Bricksworth. Um, it has a subterranean outdoor ambulatory... And I was thinking, mm, I know what an ambulance is. And I know amble is walking. Do I know what an ambulatory is? So in a sense, sometimes, hopefully what the book does for people is it decodes the, 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 those words when you go in there. So there's a whole thing about kind of language, which can you have to kind of get your head around when you're in there. I mean, the beauty is pretty obvious. But you also see things that absolutely speak to to today. So a really good example, and this one isn't in the book because I only discovered it very recently, uh, we spent quite a lot of time in Norfolk And I read an obituary of a man who'd restored a very ancient church, really off his own bat, at a place called St. Mary's in um, Houghton-on-the-Hill, which is quite near Swaffham, but it's literally in the middle of nowhere. So in the summer, I went with my daughter, who's a theology student at the moment, and she'd really, really want me to point out now that she has no intention of being a nun or a vicar, but she finds theology interesting. Um, And we went to look at this church. And I mean, it's a wonderful church and he's restored it very beautifully. But what he'd done inside, which is absolutely fascinating, this is a 9th, 10th, 11th century church um, he 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 chipped away at the walls to get back to the original wall paintings and he'd found such wonderful things that english heritage and all sorts of people got involved and the one that really catches your eye it's on one side it's the garden of eden scene and so you've got the on one side you've got the tree with the snake and adam is sitting underneath it and standing alongside it is god reaching out and embracing eve and lifting her up So my daughter, the reason having, having, you know, made her go to Catholic schools wants nothing to do with the Catholic Church is because she's a feminist. And then you look at this and you think, oh, look, in the 10th century, people had a problem with that Daughters of Eve kind of line, that women are all temptresses. And what did they do? On the wall of their church in the 10th century, they had God embracing Eve and casting out Adam. So it speaks to contemporary dilemmas in that sense, or contemporary arguments. You're not just kind of going back into some dark, dusty, irrelevant bit of things. It connects both to the debates that we have at the moment, and they also connect connect you as a person to those people because it's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a history. Often there's someone associated with the church and you, and you read their history and think, oh, I might have done that. That's a bit like me. Or a, a wonderful church with angels on the roof that wasn't, the angels weren't removed in the Reformation. Um, you're thinking, why weren't they removed? And you thought they weren't removed because they meant something to people. And they still mean something to people now. We're connected to them. One in three people in this country believes they have a guardian angel. One in 10 thinks they've seen an an angel. And only only one in four says they're fairly religious. So angels are really important to people now and they were really important then. We're connected. This isn't all musty past that we have no interest in. It tells us about ourselves.
1: So where do you see the role of churches being in the next century then?
2: Oh, gosh, that's a difficult question. I mean, in terms of the church buildings themselves, I would really, really like them to be seen much more than they are at the moment as sort of communal assets. I mean, I don't want them to be museumified and, you know, uh, security checks and kind of charges when you go in them. But equally... The very beautiful church I've just described was uh, was restored and resurrected by the efforts of one man who was remarkable at raising money to do it. The church with the angels that I've talked about has a congregation of about four in it if you go there on a Sunday, and they're responsible for the upkeep of this 14th century building. It seems to me... You know, we talk a lot at the moment in this country about our image of Britain and what being British means. And one of the things that defines the British landscape in a way, particularly the British countryside landscape, is the kind of rolling green fields and you can see a spire in the distance. And I think if all those spires went or crumbled, we'd all be very sad. So if we want them to be there and I think I've I've said enough already to explain why they're valuable for all of us, even if we don't believe anything, then perhaps we could put a little bit of money into them to preserve them and help the churches preserve them, because they can no longer preserve them out of their own pocket. Uh, it, it, it just it not it viable, and we will lose them. But there's another question that I sort of ask at the end of the book as well. So I did my 20 churches, and I thought, oh God, this book leads an epilogue now, so what should the epilogue be? And it came to me, I thought, I wonder... I mean, I know we're only in 2021 at the moment, so we've only done a fifth of the century. But I wonder what the Church of the 21st century would be if, if you know, if I if I took some elixir and was able to live until the uh, until another century, what would if I added a new Church, which would it be? Very little church building done now. Uh, A lot of the church building that's done is often these new evangelical churches where the building doesn't really matter very much. They're often sort of aircraft hangars on the outskirts of towns. uh, They're not built to last. Um, But it seemed to me one of the things, and I was writing this book during COVID, um, when we were all encouraged not to gather inside, but to gather outside. There is a whole movement going on now where People gather in nature, people of belief ac- across all sorts of beliefs. The one that I talk about in the book is a place called um, Wild Spirit, who gather in Sussex, on the Sussex coast, on beaches, on clifftops, and in, in uh, on the downs there. And they're people who come together. They they may have been part of some other church beforehand and been been sort of cheesed off by it. They may never have been at all, and they come together and they almost distil the essence. And part of the essence is is faith rooted in nature, which of course is is absolutely the theme of the 21st century. Climate change, you know, whether you like it or not, is that is what is what we will stand or fall literally by in the 21st century. And it seems to me those churches are part of that. So that's another thing I'd like to see churches. But obviously, if they're all outside in nature, there won't be any beautiful buildings for me to wander around. So it's a difficult one.
1: (laughs) I guess taking that point about um, churches of today, if you flipped it on its head... If you could go back to perhaps see one of the churches you write about in your book, where would you have liked to have seen? what And when? What time periods?
2: Well, it would have been lo- it'd be lovely to see all of them in their thriving period, particularly the ones that are a bit uh, threadbare now. Um, but the one I would really, really like to go to is the one, again, another I've mentioned already, All Saints Brixworth in Northamptonshire, because it is... I think I, I think i I managed to it was just before the November lockdown here. I went on the very last day where you could go and slipped in there before we, everything was going to be locked up again. It's in a tiny Northamptonshire village it couldn't be smaller. The church couldn't be bigger. it is absolutely vast and it's got down each side of the um of the nave it's got these four giant Saxon arches that sort of march towards the altar lots of other Saxon things in it. And I was completely built of reused Roman brick and I was, I, I was taken away, really, by the, um, the scale of it. And then what I realised as I spent time there was in each of these arches, the arches have been filled in uh, with with uh, brick and windows, but originally they were arcades, and on each side of the uh, of the nave would have been four. We would call them side chapels or or, 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 or or meeting rooms or whatever you want to call them. And this was in the um, this was in the seventh and eighth century. Uh, they would have been there, and. So you start thinking, well, what's that about? Why? Why? And you know, why would they build at the moment? The church is enormously long and quite wide, but had all these um, arcades been uh, had buildings coming off them, it would have been as wide as it was long. I mean, you know, and th- there was all sorts of explanations. You know, it was in Mercia, which was the biggest um, of the kingdoms at the time. It was a central point. It was a meeting point, and then there's a whole theory in history. Um, so around. Um, uh sixth, seventh, eighth century, the church starts meeting. So the different because the English kingdoms are all still separate, but church leaders start meeting and having councils where they meet in different places. And we know where lots of them are. But in the 8th century, they keep going to this place called Clofesho, C-L-O-F-E-S-H-O. And they go and they have it's clear they've had meetings there endlessly, and no one knows where it is. And there's all sorts of places that claim to be it. But the dominant king at the time was the Mercian king, and he is shown as having been at lots. Of these things. So given he was the dominant king, and he probably didn't like to uh, travel too far, if you think people go to Windsor Castle to see the Queen, she doesn't come to their house. Uh, so the theory is that all these church councils in the 8th century actually took place in what is All Saints Bricksworth, but when these, in these enormous arcades. So if you were going to be like Doctor Who and uh, teleport me back to another age, I'd like to go when one of these councils was going on. In, I mean, I may get a terrible shock when I arrive there and they're using it for something else altogether. And, and I go, council, council, no council here. We, you know, we had a laundry here or we had a food bank or something. And I don't know, but that's, I'd, like to go and, I'd like to be able to solve that mystery definitively. Because one of the problems with the, um, the first century of Christianity is there are lots of things that are tantalisingly true. They seem to be true, and yet you can't quite prove it.
1: I think a really good point to sort of finish on would be, obviously, almost anything you see in a church could be, tell some element of a story. It could tell us something about the past. But from your perspective, what should we As listeners, what should we be looking out for when we visit these buildings? How can we access this human history? What advice would you give?
2: I would say go with an open mind. Um, sometimes it is what it it depends on the person sometimes it is worth just reading a little something first about it so you sort of know what you're looking for uh, because often it can be uh, it can be awfully buried when you go there and also i just slightly forearm yourself with a few very basic details so you need to know the difference between a saxon um a saxon arch which is round and a gothic arch which comes later which is which is slightly pointed that will give you if you're trying to date it it will give you a clue i think interesting to look at look at the statues or the painting or the stained glass and look at what their obsessions were at, the, at, the, at that time. Why did they choose particularly often saints or, or biblical narratives? Why why choose that one all the time? What 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 was it? And then try and think about the history of the kind of, so, you know, Norfolk churches, lots of medieval churches in Norfolk, very, very prosperous area, which is why they were all built then, all about the kind of wool trade and kind of farming and whatever. Lots of the illustrations are some of those, you know, the prodigal son coming back to the farm those ones there's a reason for all of that i mean i do this when i go into museums as well i find museums often just overwhelming. So I will always think, I'm going to go and look at about three or four paintings or sculptures or something. I'm going to go and think about them. I'm going to look at them. I'm going to sit down in front of them and and just sort of... Actually, meditate is, is dignifying something much, much cruder, really. But just look and think about it. And I think you can do that in a church sometimes. Just sit there and, and pick a couple of objects and just try and think what is going on uh, there. But the other thing I think is very, very important it's just to give yourself chance to so it's, it, i'm going from the very specific to the very general to take in the beauty because as you said before churches are built for the glory of god and um and if you're going to glorify god you're going to make your best endeavors to make it look lovely i mean if you're going to go and meet someone and you want to make them feel special you try and put on your best clothes and just take in the beauty Take in the beauty. There's, there's, there's precious little beauty in many of our lives at the moment. Uh, certainly beauty that reaches back through the ages. Just sit there and let yourself be transported. Whatever your feelings about religion, and there's always that thing people say about the kind of the Pope, he should, he should sell all those artworks. The Vatican could fund everything it wants if it sells the artworks. And they're probably right. But the artworks are there in the church. They're part of the church. Just enjoy them just enjoy them and um, enjoy the beauty, being bathed in beauty. And I sort of believe, but this is, and again, I don't mean this in a particularly sort of trying to force people to agree with me, but I sort of believe that beauty is transcendent and there are i think in all our lives there are moments when we feel transported and the the sort of scientific rational basis on which we we live our lives doesn't entirely make sense i don't i don't mean you, know, you can make your own mind up whether you think there's any sort of power beyond it. But I think transcendence in itself, when you realise there's more to the world than meets the eye, when you feel carried, and I think often when you go in church, there's a very lovely phrase where um, uh, sort of I think it goes all the way back to medieval times, they call them thin places. And it's almost like the boundaries between this material world in front of us and a greater universe sort of blur slightly, get thinner as you go in there. And I just think that beauty can carry you somewhere other and it's always a good place. So, um, that's what I'd suggest as, as you're doing it. Um, and just do it very casually. They call it church crawling, um, which I, I kind I kind of get and I kind of don't get. The person who uses the phrase most is Dermot McCulloch, a professor of uh, ecclesiastical history at um, Oxford. And I like it as an idea because, in a sense, you do sort of crawl around them. But it sort of imp- implies that you're going around on all fours, which, I mean, I'm not. I don't know if he does. And it also slightly, because of pub crawling, it makes it sound like you're, you're slightly Inebriated when you're doing, and I've got no objection to going to a nice country pub for Sunday lunch and then wandering off and looking at some churches. But um, inebriate yourself on the beauty of the churches.
0: That was Peter Stanford. His book, If These Stones Could Talk, is out now, published by Hodder and Stoughton. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Collie. Tune in again on Friday, when Roderick Beaton will be speaking about Greek history.
2: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.